Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. To be in week number two of this six-week teaching series we kicked off last week called The Church of Ephesus. And if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go and catch the replay. Uh, we record all of our messages. You can watch the video. You can watch the podcast. You can't watch the podcast, but you can listen to the podcast. But you can consume last week, and you can even do it faster. If you feel like I talk too long, you can increase the speed at which I speak just to move me along a little faster. Some people complain and say, Pastor Alex, we don't need to pick up your speed We need to slow you down. And that too is possible in the podcast app. So I just want to make sure that you're aware of that. Hey, before we get started today, how many of you know why thousands of people are traveling to Gower, Missouri this weekend? Okay, there are a few of you. This is incredible. Some of you, I'm going to bring up to speed because this is the wildest thing that's ever happened. So if you don't know, Gower, Missouri is a small rural town 35 minutes north of here. Um, How many of you have ever been to Gower? Okay, a few of you, yep. Didn't stop. You just probably kept driving right through. It's like, I'm going to St. Joe via 169. So Gower, 35 minutes north of here, they actually have a Catholic monastery called Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles. And Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, she founded the monastery when she was 70 years old. But in 2019, at the ripe age of 95, Sister Lancaster passed. And you say, what does this have to do with why thousands of people are going to Gower, Missouri? Well, let me read for you just a portion of the Fox 4 article that my wife sent to me that blew my mind. I'll put it up here. When the workers unearthed her corpse on April 28th. I'm going to pause. Let that set in. Okay. (laughs) When the workers unearthed her corpse, Sister Lancaster's, on April 28th, intending to enter it in a new location, her remains were found to be intact four years after her burial. Catholics in attendance on Friday said they believe this to be a blessing from God and the makings of a modern day miracle. Now, the article went on to say that according to the diocese that they have been seeing about a thousand visitors per day, and they believe as many as 20,000 people are going to visit this Memorial Day weekend to see the nun's incorruptible corpse. Now, Some of you are like me. You're saying in your head, what? (laughs) Here's the deal. Sister Lancaster was buried without embalming and in a simple wood coffin. So the expectation was that after four years, all that they would find inside the coffin were just bones. Now, I got really intrigued. And I don't know. I think we all have different, you know, levels of curiosity. But when someone sends an article like this to me, I have to know more information. Number one, why are they moving the body? Number two, how did they see inside the coffin to see that her body was even there? Who peeked? Number three, I just got lots of questions. Like, what's going on here? So, a quick Google search later, and I learned that the coffin was actually, these workers that it referred to were actually the other nuns that live at the monastery. They unearthed her. And when one of them, um, one of the nuns, she looked through a crack in the coffin She saw a foot totally intact with a sock on it. 
And she said, that looks just like it was when we buried her. The story's getting even better for me. And so here's what another article said. It said, armed with a flashlight. She then looked closer and confirmed her initial observation, prompting cheers from the other nuns, which that's kind of fun, right? Um, and when the sisters fully opened the coffin, can you even picture this going down? Like, all right, we're going to move Sister Leah. Everybody be careful. We're going to move the coffin. And I'm looking through a crack in there because I want to see her body. And I'm like, I think I see a foot. And so I'm like, hey, do you have anybody else? Hey, I got a flashlight. Great. What? Should we open it? Who's going to catch us? All right, let's open it. What? That's When they fully opened the coffin, they were astonished to discover that her body had almost no signs of decay. Now, I, I'm so far deep into this Google search that I asked my wife, who sent me the article, I said, you did Google to find out what her body looked like, right? And she said, no. I said, how could you not? How could you not have enough curiosity to get in there and to say, what does the body look like? Some of you right now are probably on your phones, and you're like, how do you spell Wilhelmina? How do you, how do you, do? don't worry, I'll save you the time. You guys are going to get a treat. You came to church today. Some of you are like, are you really going to show a corpse in church? Well, yes, they're showing it, and if you don't have anything going on this Memorial Day weekend, you're looking for a little free entertainment, 35 miles, about 35 minutes north, you can go see Wilhelmina Lancaster's body. It's going to be super cool. Praise the Lord for your music. All right. So um, um, Google didn't disappoint, friends. Uh, I got to find out what she looked like. So I'm going to show you a picture here. Uh, you're going to see a picture of what she looked like while she was alive. And then you're going to see a picture of her uh, currently where she's at. All right. So let's, let's go ahead. Let's, let's absorb this. Let's take this in. Here's Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster. And so they literally have had thousands of people every day for the last month going to see her. They're anticipating 20,000 people to go and see her body. Um, they are going to put it under glass because so many people are wanting, apparently, to touch. They even put a little sign here that you should be gentle when touching sister's body, especially her feet. Um, <clears throat> to be honest, this is a wild story. Uh, rather crazy. Only a few of you in the room knew what was coming, but now that it's came, we're all on the same page here. And um, if when you looked at that picture... You thought a Whoopi Goldberg and Sister Act? That's on you. Uh, that's not on me. That's on you, all right? <laughs> all right, we can take down the picture. Here's what's interesting. So as I'm reading through these articles and all this hype and all these people excited, there was a priest, a Catholic priest, who traveled from Des Moines to see the body. Like, this is like an exciting thing. Like, people are coming. And so in the article that I read, after he saw the body, he was quoted as saying this to the news reporters. I can see that the church still has a future. I can see that the church still has a future. Now, now maybe I'm missing something, but you traveled maybe three hours to see the body, and when you got done seeing the body, you walked out full of hope, for the future of the church, which begs the question, what were you thinking about the future of the church prior to seeing the dead body? How bad would your view have been of the church if seeing a dead corpse, oh, there is hope for the church. 
What in the world? Is this not the weirdest thing that you've ever heard? Some of you are like not even sure what to do with your face right now. Some of you are like, is this really, is he still talking about this? Can we move on? Where's the church of Ephesus in all of this? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But here's the thing. I don't think that going and seeing a corpse of a body, even if it didn't decay as we thought it should, is going to provide hope for me in the future of the church. Because the hope I have for the future of the church is because there was no corpse in a grave 2,000 years ago. When they opened it up, the tomb was empty. I don't know why we're getting hope from seeing a dead corpse. That doesn't make any sense to me. We have the greatest news ever. We serve a God who is alive. He is not dead. He is not in the grave. It would have been more amazing if the Catholics looked in there and they saw no body. Now that would be crazy. What happened to Wilhelmina? Where did she go? What's going on? Like that would be more incredible. And so as I think about this, like we as a church, why do we have hope? Why do, why, why do we have a future? Why should I be filled with hope for the future of the church? Because we are still doing what God asked us to do. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus who conquered the grave said that he's coming back. Like, like what? Yeah, he's coming back. And when he comes and gets us, guess what? We all get new bodies. It ain't like that body that didn't decay. No, you're getting a whole new one. It's going to work. It's not going to lay there. People aren't going to touch it. It's going to be so good. Like you're going to have hope of what we call a bodily resurrection. Like we have a hope that surpasses anything. And the hope that I have for the future of the church is that we are, and maybe you've never thought about this, we are the incarnation of Jesus Christ on earth today. Like you realize like for thousands of years, as you read through what we call the Old Testament part of the Bible, there was this promise that there would be a savior to come. Someone who could forgive you of your sins, change your life, make you new. And so everybody was waiting in great anticipation for this savior. And we all know John 3, 16, like maybe the most famous Bible verse of all time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You, you realize we serve a triune God. We, we serve a God who is three in one. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father so loved the world that he sent his Son. His Son came to earth and took on flesh. It was Jesus. It was God incarnate. It was God wrapped in flesh. And we got to behold his glory, the disciples wrote. We got to see him. He did miracles. He did incredible things. He helped us know things about heaven, where he came from, that we would never know if he hadn't opened his mouth, if he hadn't taken on flesh. He actually helped us to understand what God the Father's like because there is no division. Like They are the same God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all God. We serve one God. We don't serve three gods. And as we see Jesus and we understand him, we understand the wholeness of God more clearly. But then guess what? Jesus left earth and ascended back to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he sent the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to come and to indwell the believers. And do you know what we are today? We are Christ's body on earth. We are Christ incarnate. The only picture of God people will see in flesh is you and me, the church. So do I have hope for the church? Yeah. 
We are Christ on earth. We are doing the same thing Jesus did when he came to earth. Jesus came on a mission from God the Father, like the Blues Brothers. He's on a mission from God, and he's trying to reconcile people who are far from God to him. He's creating a bridge from people who need to know him to know him. There's this ministry of reconciliation. There's been a division. There's been sin. There's been separation. God is, through Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus has ascended. He said, guess what? You all, the church, you've got the ministry of reconciliation. Continue to do what I've been doing. Help people know that God the Father loves them, that there's forgiveness that's available, that they can be a part of a new kingdom. They don't have to be a part of the kingdom of themselves that has horrible consequences and the best life you live is the best choices you can make, which really isn't much. But no, if they will surrender their will, they'll embrace Jesus as king, they can be a part of the kingdom of God. Like that is us. That's the role of the church today. And we're going to stay after it. And there's hope for it and a future for it until Jesus comes back. And he says, all right, good job. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been like a bride to me. Let's go. We're going to go celebrate. We're going to have a feast. Oh, yeah. Not only does the church have a future, but it also has a past. And this is what we're looking at in this series. So often in our, our culture and our world, we think that it's just all about us. We think it's all about here. I, I remember years ago, um, I, I'm a Chiefs fan. My wife confessed that to you all on Mother's Day. Um, I, I, I like the Chiefs. The Chiefs have this thing when they bring in a new, a new player, that one day what they do is they go through and they look at all of the history of the Kansas City Chiefs. They let them know about the founder. They let them know about Lamar Hunt. They let them know about how the uh, program began. They go through and they look at the retired numbers and the athletes that came before them. They look at the history so that this player recognizes it ain't all about you and the millions of dollars we're going to pay you. You are actually continuing on a legacy that has existed before you and it's going to exist after you. But while you're here, you get to represent our colors. That's pretty cool. As a church, for whatever reason, we're not as good about this. Like, we just think, man, we just got to keep going. Man, we got a great future. But, like, do you realize we have a past? Like, there is church history, and it is beneficial for us to know our past. You say, well, why do I need to know our past? Well, think about it like this. Like, we are the latest, the current link in a chain of generations of the church that goes all the way back to Jesus. Like, it's important for us to know where we came from. This is just a side point, but I'm going to give it to you. Some of you note takers are going to love this. Understanding our past and understanding church history helps us, number one, to understand our identity. It helps us to know who we are. If you don't know where you came from, you wonder who you are. I can't tell you how many students I've had in youth ministry who never met their dad. And by the time they got to be 16, 17, 18, it just really bothered them. Where did I come from? Was I loved? Who is this person? Who is this man? As a church, we should care about our past, where we came from. And when we understand it, guess what? It's going to help us with our identity. Number two, in church history, we see God continuing to work in and through people. We look in the Bible and we see that God was involved in people's lives. He was doing crazy, incredible things. But then we come all the way to now. Well, what happened? I don't seem to see God working the same way. Well, if we look at church history, we will see that God has been involved every year, every culture, every season, every era, every generation, from him in the Bible all the way to us today. And so church history helps us 
to see that God has been active and that should build our faith. We should have more trust in him because he's been faithful. He's been consistent. He hasn't been gone. He didn't say, oh, I got the Bible done. I'm going to go take a break. No, he's still been here involved in our lives. Number three, church history also allows us to learn from others who wanted to know Jesus. They wanted to know Jesus better. Well, I want to know Jesus better. Can I learn from those who went before me who wanted to know Jesus better? The answer is yes, if I'm willing to learn. And number four, church history also protects us from errors and mistakes. I don't know if you know this or not, but once you start jumping into church history, it didn't always go well. The church made some poor choices along the way. For a long season, they thought slavery was good. For a while, they thought that the, the priest or the man of God should be above the president. And so then there was like this political angst and all sorts of... For a while, the church started selling forgiveness to people. That was not... That did not go well. That did not go well. And so, so when we look at church history, if we don't know where we came from, we don't know our past, we are, are super susceptible to repeat the past. We're super susceptible to make the same mistakes that generations before us did. But if we're smart... We won't have to learn those lessons on our own. There was a song by DC Talk back in the 90s that says some people got to learn the hard way. I guess I'm the kind of guy who's got to find out for himself. I don't want to be that as the church. <laughs> I want to learn from whoever came before me. I said, I don't want to do that. I had a sister 10 years older than me. She made some bad choices. You know what I said? I don't want to make those bad choices. I'm going to be better. <laughs> we can be better if we know our church history. So, in this teaching series that we kicked off last week, we are looking at the church of Ephesus. Ephesus is this city. It was a, an urban highlight. It was super populous. It was a place of great trade. It was a place of spirituality. And it's found in what we would call modern-day Turkey. Its key architectural structure was uh, a tourist attraction for everybody. It was called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. And it was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Ephesus had people coming in all over the place, all the time, making business deals, having spirituality, all of these things. And so Paul, who is this first century Christian leader, briefly visited Ephesus before returning later and spending two years in the city. You could say that his ministry was effective, but you could also say that it was very controversial. Like everybody in the city found out who Paul was. After three months of speaking in the synagogue, he was forced out and took up residence in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. News of the message that he was communicating about Jesus being risen from the grave and that there's new life available to us, it started to spread throughout the whole region. It didn't stay just in the city. It went to all the neighboring regions. You had a lot of people coming in, making business deals, and they're hearing this message and taking it back to where they lived. And extraordinary things were happening. Handkerchiefs touched by him were used to cure the sick. Demons were cast out in the name of Jesus. Pagans came and they brought their books of magic and they burned them. Uh, eventually, uh, this riot broke out in Ephesus because of Paul. Uh, there was a silversmith named Demetrius who organized the citywide protest. And he charged that Paul's success posed a threat to the economic well-being of the city's craftsmen. All of that we covered in detail last week. That's why I wanted to encourage you to check that out. But then, what happened? This riot happened, they all dispersed. Well, Paul, he moved. He didn't stay in Ephesus. He was like, 
all right, this is a good time for me to move along. I'm going to tell some other people about Jesus and start some churches in some different locations. And so he left the church at Ephesus to share Jesus with others. And what's so cool is that after Paul left, after he spent time teaching daily, every day for two years he taught, when he left, the church didn't fall apart. I love that. So often in our world today, we hear about churches being built around individuals and personalities. And as soon as one person falls, like the whole thing crumbles. Not the church of Ephesus. Like they weren't committed to Paul. They were committed to the God Paul served. Paul's the one that said, follow me as I follow Christ. That they did. And so they remained organized and they continued to gather regularly for worship and to spread the good news of Jesus to those who still hadn't heard. And I love that that church doesn't miss a beat even in Paul's absence. After several years passed, years passed, Paul eventually finds himself in Rome, but not as a free man. In fact, he's a prisoner. And from prison, Paul sat down and he wrote some letters. The first letter he wrote was to a guy by the name of Philemon, and it was to accept back one of his slaves that had accepted the Lord. Onesimus was his name. The second letter he wrote was to the church at Colossus who was having all sorts of problems and there was false teachings going on. And so he wrote them to tell them, hey, let's make sure that we're staying true to the gospel that we first heard. Let's avoid false teachings. And then the third letter he wrote was to the believers who were at Ephesus and the surrounding area. And it was a letter that was written not just to the people of Ephesus, but it was designed for all of the people in that region and in that area to read and pass along one to another. It's considered a circulating letter. And now, in the moment that Paul is sitting down in prison to write these letters, he had no idea that we would be reading them 2,000 years later. Like Paul in the moment had no idea that what was coming out of the end of whatever he was writing with was going to be scripture, that we would consider it without error. He was just simply writing a letter to encourage the people of God. The churches that he'd been to, he was encouraging Philemon to accept one semester back. And so we've since considered these to be inspired by God. But in the moment, from, from Paul's perspective, his letters end up making up 24% of our New Testament. But, but I think this is a good point to make. Often, you have no idea how God is using you. Paul had no idea when he's sitting down to write these letters that this is going to impact 2,000 years of Christ's followers. Often, you and I have no idea how God's using us. But you know what we need to do? Just keep doing the next right thing. Well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in five years. Don't worry about that. What should you do today? Well, I'm going to do the next right thing. Great. You have no idea how God's going to use you. I'm going to do the next right thing tomorrow. Great. You do that every day, and in five years, you'll be exactly where God wants you to be. You don't have to worry about the future. The future's got enough worries of its own. You know what? Today, I need to make this step. It doesn't seem like a very big step. It's a small step in the right direction. Let's make sure we're going in the right direction, not the wrong direction. Small step. I'm going to do the next right thing. I can't tell you how many people have came to me and they've said, Pastor Alex, I'll never forget the time that you said something, and they tell me a story that I don't even think I was there for. Like, I don't even remember <laughs> It was not significant enough on my radar to even use any brain space. I did not remember it at all. But it was life-changing for them. You have no idea how God's using you. I go to my 20-year high school reunion last week. That was fun. 
Some of you are like, I would never go to my reunion. You know what was cool? Is that nobody was surprised that I'm still in ministry. Nobody was surprised that I was not participating in the alcoholic beverages. Nobody was surprised. Because there's been a consistency in my life. There's been a character in my life. I've always hoped to be a lighthouse. I was telling my wife this the other day. We have students that would come through youth ministry, and I would tell them, listen, you're going to go to college, and uh, I really want you to pursue Jesus. I want you to find a church to plug into. I want you to find somebody. But listen, I ain't going to be driving to your college campus. I ain't going to be beating on your door. I'm going to treat you like a young adult. I ain't going to treat you like a kid. You got a free will, and you can choose to follow Jesus. And listen, I am your biggest supporter. And if you ever need anything, all you got to do is text me, call me, send me an email. You do whatever. I'll move heaven and earth to get to you and help you if you're wanting to move in the right direction. But I'm not going to be the one chasing you down like some child. No, you're a young adult. Step up. And so my goal was always to be a lighthouse. That is, their little boats went off into the ocean. And whatever storms may come, that they would know there's one person that never moved. Pastor Alex stood on the shore. I got thrown all over the place. But I always knew where home was. I always knew where right was. And so my prayer even today, as I've taken over being the lead pastor, is for all of those young people that I spoke to, that I spent time with, that they would return. I can't move. Or they can't find home. I'm going to be a lighthouse. I can't be running up and down the shore. (laughs) I'm going to have to stay planted. Here's home. Here's love. You're welcome. You never know how God is going to use you. What you got to do is you just got to keep doing the next right thing. About two weeks ago, I got a phone call from a friend who's a pastor of another church here in Kansas City. They currently, for the past eight years, have been leasing a space out by the airport. And, uh, and they found out that they're no longer going to be able to lease in the building that they've been. And so they had prepared to move um, out of that space and to go mobile. They were going to start loading in and out of a school. And so they weren't <laughs> real excited about that. Um, if you can imagine um, everything that you see here, uh, all right, guys, we got to get rid of it. You know, we got to clear the space and we're going to set it up next week and do that week after week. And so um, they were all set up. They were going to start meeting at a school up in Platte County. And uh, he called me. And he said, uh, he said, Pastor Alex, I said, he said I, don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know, but I just felt like I should call you. And uh, is there any possibility that you might lease any part of your building to our church for us to meet? And I said, well, so I ain't thought about that, and I ain't going to give you a quick answer. How about that? And so he said, well, you, you pray about it and, and get a hold of me. And so um, I processed it and praying, and, and we built this building that you're setting in in 93. We expanded on it in 2010. And we built these facilities not for any other reason but to lift up the name of Jesus, to help people in this community to know Christ. And, uh, and so there's a place of stewardship I need to be a steward of what we have here. And so I said, here's, here's the deal. I called him back. I said, why don't you come up? I'm not going to share space in our sanctuary with you, but 
But I said what I'd be willing to do is I'd be willing to, to lease out to you the upstairs part of our building. We have another auditorium there. Uh, we have classroom space. We have a cafe. Um, I said the only kick would be like you can't meet on Sundays because our parking lot can't handle it. But if you'd be willing to meet on a different day, uh, your church could have a home. Well, he came. He brought his worship pastor with him. And uh, they were just overwhelmed that we would even consider offering them a place to call home, that they would have a place that they could set up and not have to tear down, that they could be while they try to look for a permanent home. Our economy's a little weird, so it was kind of hard to find a building. That's what they were hoping for. And so um, tomorrow, uh, Lift Church is going to be moving in here. They're having their final service this morning, and Saturday night, they're going to have their first church service at our facilities upstairs here. And so I just want to let you guys know that you'd never know how God's going to use you. Ten years ago when we built on, we had no thought about leasing or helping another church. But by George, if it was an opportunity for us to do good and to help the church and to help them, we're not competing. It's not like Burger King and McDonald's here. No, we're all a part of the same franchise. Like we all have the same boss. And so guess what? Church is kind of like Baskin Robbins. There's 31 flavors. There's one for everybody. And so you like this flavor? Great. If not, there's another church that's probably your flavor. Okay? So I want you to know that uh, we are excited to be a blessing to this church. And I believe it's a mutual blessing on both sides. And so they're going to be coming and uh, calling this their church home. So you might see some signage out front that says Lift Church, 6 o'clock, Saturday nights. If you drive by on the highway, you're going to see feather banners and all sorts of stuff. You'd be like, what's going on there? Hey, you're invited. And so I'm going to attend their first church service here this Saturday night. And uh, if you want to come and just be a support and an encouragement to them, man, show up. Come and be a part and just love on them as they make this transition from Sunday mornings to Saturday nights with the heart of reaching people. And I believe in that they're going to reach new people, people who couldn't make Sunday mornings. And, and if you told me, hey, we're going to stop meeting on Sunday mornings, meet on Saturday nights, I'd be like, I don't, I don't know about that. But their whole church is excited about it. They're excited to sleep in on Sundays. They're excited to get church going on Saturday nights. And so I'm excited about that as well. So if you can, remember Lift Church in Prayer. They got their name. They wanted to lift people up high enough to encounter Jesus. And so that's what their church name is, Lift Church. They want to lift people up. So uh, I was talking to John earlier. He's like, great, we can come get them lifted up on Saturday nights and get new life on Sunday. This is going to be so good. I was like, that's, that's pretty good, man. That's pretty good. So, so when we're back to our story here, Paul's writing these three letters from jail. The letter to Philemon, to Coloss, those make sense. They're addressing specific issues. Philemon, hey, you need to accept one Smith back. Like, there should be unity uh, among you because you guys are both Christian brothers now. Coloss, listen, like, we got to address some things. You're believing some weird stuff. We got to get back on the page, same page. But when it came to this letter to Ephesus that's going to be circulated, where would you even start writing? I'm not addressing a problem. I'm not writing an individual. I'm not writing even a specific town. I'm not necessarily just writing to Ephesus. I'm writing to everybody in the surrounding area. What does that letter even look like? And as I started to think about this, I was like, this is why I get overwhelmed sometimes thinking about speaking in church on Sunday mornings. Because there's such a diversity in this room. 
There are some of you who are like, man, God is so good. I'm getting the blessings of God every day. And then some of you are like, I am in struggle city right now. I am depressed. I don't like my life. Uh, I don't even know. Maybe I need to go up and look at that corpse. I need some hope. Like, I don't know. Like, we need something. Like, so, so we have a great diversity here uh, of people. And so I, I just, I sat down and I said, I just want to make a quick list. So we're going to put this list up here. In the room today, Check this out. There are people exploring faith in Christianity. They haven't even stepped over the line of faith. There are others who are wrestling with their belief system. What do I really believe about things? Others are growing spiritually and putting down roots. They're feeling good. Some are excited to serve God through the local church with their talents and times. They're getting excited. They're working behind the scenes, getting ready to go. Others are walking through health issues. And the pain and the struggle is daily and consistent. There's others who are finding their footing in a new chapter of life. They're excited about the future. They're in a new place. Others feel like it's the same old thing, just a new day. There's others who are doing their best as caregivers, and it's wearing on them. There are parents praying and hoping that their children find Jesus and find him sooner than later. There's some who are looking for employment. There are others who are celebrating raises and bonuses that they receive from their boss. There are others who are concerned about their finances and future. All of these people are in the room. Oh, well, pastor, what are you going to do? What kind of message are you going to give? Oh, that's hard. That's hard. What, what should I say? I could be overwhelmed if I think about everybody's individual story. But when I think about Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians, like that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to write to a very diverse group. And so in the New Bible Commentary, it said this, and I thought this was really good. We'll put it up here. It says, Ephesians is best understood as a stately prayer or a call to worship. It's designed to lift the reader's eyes away from themselves and from their fears to the majesty and love of God revealed in his unfolding plan and to the privilege of participating in it. All those people in the room, that's what you need to do. You need to take your eyes off of yourself and off of your fears, and you need to put them on the majesty and the love of God that is revealed in his unfolding plan which is the church, which is why we're excited about the church, and to the privilege of being able to participate in it. So here in just a moment, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. But before we do, I want to remind you that Paul was writing this letter from prison. I said it, but sometimes we overlook that. Now, if I'm going to write you a letter from prison, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that the underlying theme that would be in my letter is sadness, gloom, despair, I probably wouldn't be real happy. I probably wouldn't be full of joy. I probably wouldn't be, woohoo, God's so good. Let's sing that song about the goodness. I probably wouldn't be doing the goodness of God song. But Paul, Paul had a whole different way of approaching things. Almost the entire first chapter of Ephesians is Paul praising God for the many blessings that he has been given through Jesus Christ. He's not focused on his current situation. He's not focused on his circumstance. His eyes are on the majesty of Jesus, and he is worthy of praise. And so I want you to know, just as Paul was, those who are Christians are blessed. If you've stepped over that line of faith, no matter what your circumstance, no matter what your situation, you are blessed. 
And Paul isn't cool with you just knowing that you're blessed. He wants to say, let me tell you exactly how you're blessed. And so here's what he says. He says that you are blessed with transformation and holiness. In other words, God's going to change your life. Whatever your past has been, that's not gonna be your future. There's gonna be a change. There's gonna be a new owner. There's gonna be things that are gonna happen. And and, and guess what? God's gonna help you to be what you could never have been on your own. He promises to make you holy, to make you like God wants you to be. There's transformation. Man, what a blessing that is. I'm so glad I don't have to live an old life. I got a new life. Oh, that's so good. Uh, I also got the blessing of adoption. We're gonna read in verse five. I get to be a part of a new family. We get a heavenly father. This is so good. We also get the blessing of redemption and forgiveness. We're gonna be set free from bondage to sin and addiction. And we're going to be forgiven. The debt that we owed, it's been canceled. We're gonna have newness here. We're gonna be given this blessing of a divine inheritance it talks about in verse 11. Because we're children of God, we have things to look forward to after this earthly life's over. And then finally, we are blessed with the Holy Spirit who is doing a work behind the scenes, sealing things in our hearts, protecting us, and also a guarantee so that we know there's things to come. And so we're going to break this all down in just a little bit. But Paul lists all of these blessings because he's trying to get the readers, and you and I even today, to know that God is worthy of our praise. He wants us to praise him. Like, oh yeah, I don't know if I have anything to praise him about. My life's kind of weird. Okay, but God's so good. If you step over the line of faith, there's things to praise him for, despite your weird life. It's going to be awesome if you take your eyes off yourself and put them on him. And so what Paul was really trying to do with this letter was to unite the church in Christ. Not unite them around a specific ideology, not unite them around a specific creed. No, I want them to be united in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul emphasized that these blessings are true for all believers. And his encouragement here is that we would consciously resist forces that would try to divide us from one another, that would cause us to believe something that's not true. He wanted us to have a unity and a oneness. To when one suffers, we come alongside. We mourn with those who mourn, we celebrate with those who celebrate, that we would be a living body. So let's look at Ephesians chapter one, and we're gonna have to hit the gas pedal because... I know that there's no work or school tomorrow, but I still don't want to keep you here late. Here we go. Ephesians chapter one, verse one, it says this. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Perhaps you've been in a church where that's kind of the traditional greeting. You would turn to one another and you would say grace and peace. There's the scriptural reference for that. And I do like that, grace and peace. Verse three, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. That deserves an amen right there. We have a blessing. He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Transformation is ours. You couldn't have it in your old self. You've been made new. You have every blessing available to you. 
Verse 4 says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us who are in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Before he made the world, God loved and chose who? Us in Christ. Those of us in Christ. The community of believers, the, the church of Christians at large. And he chose them to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. Isn't that good? I wonder what God wants to do. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bring you without fault as holy into his family. And, and guess what it did? It gave him great pleasure. How cool is that? You know what my uncle does for pleasure? He goes and plays golf. What's God do? He reconciles the world to himself. He's playing a different game than us. <laughs> Blessing number two is right there. There's our adoption. Now, now, some of you may get hung up on these verses here because you might have a translation that says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And I'll just take a minute to unpack kind of this predestination in advance thing um, without maybe trying to go too deep. Um, <clears throat> the early church never read these verses to believe that the future was fixed. Sometimes people begin to say, oh, God's predestined everything, then I don't really have a free will, then whatever God wants to have happen is going to have happen no matter what I choose or don't choose. So it doesn't matter. And so then they just kind of resign from life. But, but I don't think that's what this says. And in fact, that reading of this didn't happen until about 300 AD when a guy by the name of Augustine came up and he was like, well, if God's sovereignty is in charge of everything, then he's already decided who's in heaven and he's already decided who's in hell. And so he began to push this idea of a double predestination, that you're predestined for heaven or some of you, sorry, you're born and he didn't like you or whatever, and you're predestined for hell. And so it was a, a weird theology, but like it caught wind. And, and in fact, it's so influenced Christian circles uh, because Martin Luther and John Calvin both kind of hopped on that bandwagon that we hear it and feel it and sense it. And it's like, it's hard to read that without thinking that God already has the future all predetermined. Now, I believe that there are certain things that God definitely is going to do in the future. Like he's coming back. He said that. That's on him. Now, when he comes back for the church, whether or not you're a part of the church, now that's up to you. But he's coming back for his church. His church is going to be resurrected. So, so think about it like this. Some of you this morning may have made a last minute choice to come to church. And as I open this message with the weirdest story I've ever opened in a sermon, talking about Sister Lancaster's corpse. I've never said corpse so much in my life either. That's kind of fun. Um, you might ask, uh, Pastor Alex, when did you decide to talk about that story? And I could tell you that days ago, I made that decision. And you could accurately say that Pastor Alex predestined us to hear about Sister Lancaster days ago. That would be true. Now, whether or not you were in the room, I didn't predestine that, but I predestined that whoever was in this room was going to hear about Sister Lancaster and look at her dead corpse on that screen. That's what I predestined. Now, you made a choice to be here. You made a choice to be a part of this. And I believe the same thing is true when we read these scriptures, that even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. What did he choose? He chose for those who are in Christ to be holy and without fault before his eyes. And those who are going to be a part of the church, those who have embraced Christ, those who have surrendered their will to him, that guess what? They get to be adopted into his family. 
That was determined before you ever came about. Now, we like to think about it in American terms, well, it's me, right? No, it's the church. The church is the ones who are being adopted. It's the church. Now, your involvement in the church is up to you, but it's the church that these promises are true and for. And notice here that God did not predestine you individually. Like, I didn't predestine you individually to hear about Sister Lancaster. I predestined whoever showed up in church today to hear about that. You showed up by your own will. And what was predestined for the whole became predestined for you. And I believe that God predestined that whoever is in Christ would become holy and blameless. Now that you've chosen to be in Christ, all right, I'm a Christian, then what was promised to the whole becomes predestined for you as the individual. We went deep, but I think you got it. Verse 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Yeah, we ought to. That's amazing. He poured out his grace on us. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Blessing three, redemption and forgiveness. Verse eight, he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. We could talk a long time on just verse 8, but we don't have time. Verse 9. <laughs> God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Ooh, that's a cool mysterious plan. You mean like... The politics of our world, wars and rumors of war, all that's gone. Yeah, it's all going to be under his authority. Furthermore, oh, there's more to the story. Verse 11, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. I'm so glad that God's smarter than me. Even with all my dumb choices, he can still get done what he needs to get done. He's super smart. And there's our divine inheritance, that fourth blessing. Verse 12 says, God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles, you're not Jews, you non-Jews, have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, guess what? He identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The spirit of God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. The fifth blessing is that the Holy Spirit is here as a guarantee of a future that we have with God. When a person steps over the line of faith and puts their trust and allegiance in Jesus, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and the same power that raised Jesus from the grave now lives in you. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Trinity as a helper and a guide. What is he working? What is he guiding us to? What is he helping us with? He's helping us to become all that God wants. He is making us new from the inside out. And when you try to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit, it's like trying to drive a car without gas. It's not difficult. It's impossible. You have to have God's Holy Spirit in order to do what he's asking you to do. The Holy Spirit is the fuel, is the power that we have to have if we're ever going to live like Jesus. And it's through the Holy Spirit that we can receive 
power and gifts and anointing, that we can receive direction, that we can receive knowledge and know how to function in the kingdom of God. So this morning, as we're going through this church of Ephesus, and as I know that there's lots of diversity in this room and where you're at and what you're going through, I want you to take your eyes off of whatever your situation is, whatever you're going through, and look at who Jesus is. You've been blessed, and he is worthy of our praise. And there are blessings that we have as Christians. In fact, I want you to embrace these truths. We'll put them all up here. See, if you have stepped over the line of faith and you're a part of the church, the body of Christ on earth today, the incarnation of Christ, then guess what? We are God's possession and secure in him. He sealed us. We have been given the Holy Spirit as a promise of our inheritance to come. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We were chosen in Christ to be holy before the world was created. We are without blame before him. We were chosen by God to be adopted as his children. We have been bought out of slavery to sin, that's redemption, and forgiven. We have received his generous grace. And if that's true for us, and you're a part of the us, then that becomes true for you individually. And so we're going to make this some I statements. And I would encourage you, maybe grab your phone, snap a picture of this, because some of you need to know these truths. You need to hear them. You need to pray over them. You need to confess them. You need to say them so that they're cemented in your heart. You need to make this personal. Let's put the next one up here. It says that I am God's possession and secure in him and sealed. I have become, I've been given the Holy Spirit as a promise of our inheritance to come. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I was chosen in Christ to be holy before the world was created. I am without blame before him. I was chosen by God to be adopted as his child. I have been bought out of slavery to sin and forgiven. I have received his generous grace. Just as Paul sent this letter to all these churches, he wanted to encourage them. He wanted them to know who they were in Christ. He wanted to teach them and help them have a new identity. And I think we all struggle with our identity. And our first thing is we are in Christ, but now we are a part of his body. And as a part of this body, the promises for all of us are true for us. If you begin to see life from God's point of view, you'll live a radical life. And I believe that God wants his church to be radical, just as the church of Ephesus was. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.